Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick and one of the many volunteers of Fair Mormon who help those with faith issues. These podcasts will be a series of nine episodes done by Karen Trifoletti from the I Believe podcast. Each episode deals with issues regarding how the Bible is a reliable source of truth. These podcasts are used by permission of Karen Trifoletti and the I Believe podcast group. And now, the authenticity of the Bible. I'm Andrew Hancock, producer of I Believe Podcasts, intended for all truth seekers, from agnostic and religiously unaffiliated to those intellectually struggling, or friends of other faiths seeking to know more about life's meaning, Christianity, or Christ's church. Your host is Karen Trifoletti, a self-identified, perfectly imperfect, but graced follower of Jesus Christ. For more podcasts or information, please visit our website at iBelievePodcast.com or subscribe on iTunes. Here's Karen. Welcome back to the I Believe Podcast. We're so glad you're with us today. We love hearing from you, so please do continue to uh, engage with us on Facebook, Google+, YouTube, Twitter, or on site, iBelievePodcast.com. We're back with Part 8 from our series on the authenticity of the Bible, and we're here again with our guest, D.M. Johnson. In this installment, we'll address with you what has sometimes been called undesigned coincidences in the Bible. You know, we referred to this briefly in our overview cast, but for those who just popped onto this episode with maybe uh, out having listened to it previously, that phrase refers to places where the gospel accounts and even things outside the Bible give us independent pieces of data that when put together with other data give us a more full and comprehensive understanding of an event a reason to consider the whole in light of the tapestry of details woven through it. Dave, do you want to say anything before we dive in other than hello and welcome? Yeah, yeah, it's good to be here. I just want people to realize as we go through this that um, nothing in this presented by itself is overwhelming evidence. Um, This is sometimes called a cumulative force argument or cumulative force evidence. In other words, one or two times uh, you might think that something like this, okay, well, that could just happen by chance. But at some point, after you see it over and over and over again, it becomes a little bit ridiculous to insist that all of these things are just purely happening by luck or some kind of random circumstance. And so we have both internal and external coincidences. And the other neat thing about this kind of evidence, these internal examples, is that uh, the sources are just your Bible. So you don't need to know you know, all these different archaeological sources or different things. Um, you can just follow these things along and put the material together yourself just when you study your Bible through the different uh, gospel narratives to confirm these things. Thanks. Uh, David, as we go through this, we want to mention that in some of our earlier casts, we did look at a lot of things external to the Bible that coincidentally uh, matched up with the Bible and which shed light on facts that were congruent with the New Testament. Can you speak to maybe some additional external evidences that match up with the Bible to take that even maybe a step further for our audience? Yeah, there are some things we didn't go over in that cast, which are little details. Uh, remember, this kind of evidence is, is a lot like, like I said, like a snowflake almost, in that it can add up to an avalanche at some point. And so any one thing by itself isn't that big, but when you put them in their totality, they're big. And so one that comes to mind is the value of a denarius. Um, we hear uh, in, in Matthew, Jesus tells a parable about the owner of a vineyard who hires an unskilled worker um, at the rate of a denarius for a, a day's labor. Uh, Tacitus recounts uh, a mutinous speech uh, 
to some Roman soldiers in about 14 CE, in which he suggested that they deserve uh, a fair wage, namely a denarius per day. And we have that right in the writing of Tacitus. So there's also details of the temple tax and the didrachma. In, in Matthew 17, 24 through 27, we hear about the, the two didrachma temple tax. Um, and that's interesting. The stator coin uh, has the value of four didrachma, just enough to pay for both Jesus and Peter. And so you start looking at some of these things, and it's interesting. They just, again, keep adding up to make a full picture. I love the details. Um, um, I think about the external coincidences we have from that list of items you mentioned in the earlier cast from the scholar Colin Hemmer, who had 84 specific items that were confirmed by various historical and archaeological research. You know, And I remember you mentioning those things included things like ports and boundaries and landmarks and you know, even slang terminology, local languages, um, local deities, local industries, and proper titles even for numerous you know, regional and local officials. You know, a few examples of these for our audience, um, if you missed that other cast too, might include things like this. The governor of Cyprus is called the proconsul, and that's mentioned in Acts 13.7. The magistrates of Philippi were governors. The chief executive magistrate in Ephesus is a town clerk. Again, you don't just write this accurately and happen to match outside discoveries by chance. Right. I'd like to look at some of the internal uh, evidence. Sometimes we have two works by different authors that interlock in a way uh, that would be pretty unlikely to get right by accident. And and so sometimes, um, you know, one book may mention a detail in passing that answers some question that it's actually raised by another book. And so two records can fit together kind of like pieces of a puzzle. It's also important to understand that for for fictional works or forgeries, you wouldn't uh, purposely leave loose ends or hanging questions. Um, You would expect to find data that interlocked like this, however, in authentic records, which talked about the same event um, if the authors knew about the subjects they're writing about. And, And so, Karen, let's take a passage and have you read it and then we'll ask uh, we'll ask a question and see if another passage that uh, that we'll read can answer or fill in that question. Could you go ahead and just read uh, Matthew eight fourteen through sixteen? Sure. Okay. Here's how that reads. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening. They brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So I'm just going to jump in here. So the question that we would ask, if people really believe Jesus could truly heal the sick, why would they wait until the evening to come to him? You know, you, you read that he's done this great thing, and then it's in the evening when they come? So, so let's look in Mark to see if we get an explanation out of this. Could you go ahead and read Mark one twenty one, and then verses 29 through 32? Sure. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. So this is an interesting example. Uh, Remember, during the uh, the second temple period, we have fanatical Jews who are very strict uh, about their observance of the Sabbath. And from Matthew's account, we're left wondering, why did they wait? Why did they wait until the evening? Uh, You wouldn't do that. Why, Why would people do that if they could really get healed right then? 
But then in Mark, we understand the detail was that it was the Sabbath, which ended at sundown. So it actually makes perfect sense when you tie it together. Exactly. So in this case, yeah, Mark, uh, Mark explains Matthew. And so, Karen, let's read Luke 9.36 and also Mark 9.9 9 and contrast them to see how they fit together. Uh, go ahead and let's do that. One will probably leave us with a hanging question like we saw, and then we'll see if the other one fills that question in. Right. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything what they had seen. That's in Luke 9.36. So the question here is, I mean, why were they keeping silent about this? Right. right. seems like a huge deal. They just had seen Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus. It just doesn't seem in character that they would be quiet. Um, Luke didn't give any explanation for them being quiet. But hold on while I read Mark, uh, which states, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So when we piece these together again, as Davis has been sharing, it makes total sense. Mark gives us the command, but doesn't say whether they obeyed it. Luke records their obedience, but omits the command, and yet it works together synergistically. It's also worth pointing out that the most common command from Jesus, which is disregarded in the New Testament, is when he tells people not to say anything, right? Yeah, they usually go and immediately (laughs) tell people, right? So I want to go over one that I think is really powerful. And and this one is the setting uh, for the feeding of the 5,000. And this is found uh, in Mark 6, 31 and 39. I'm going to read here. It says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. And then it says, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So it's, it's interesting here we have details of many people coming and going with green grass. Now let's move to John 6.4. It says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The weeks just before the Passover are the growing season. If you if you're out if you know about that area of Palestine, the grass isn't always green there, and so this gives us a, a perfect timing mm-hmm. where they know that there would be green grass. And so also uh, we heard there are lots of people coming and going at Passover. Uh, there would be lots and lots of people coming and going with big big crowds, and so this explains why many people were mentioned by Mark. Mark doesn't tell us why many people were coming and going, and and John doesn't tell us that there were many people coming and going, um, or that there was green grass, but he explains why there would have been many people and why there would have been green grass, because it was Passover. And so when you piece these things together, it's really interesting. The overlapping details are great. I remember in the overview, too, we mentioned Herod, and I'd like to just maybe read those verses and look at this one. Um, this is from Matthew 14, 1 to 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod would have obviously been worried about this since he put John to death, right? So... Yeah, this begs the question, why is Herod talking to his servants? And and how would Matthew, of all people, know what Herod had said right. to his servants in the privacy of his own castle? You know, a skeptic would look at this and say, oh, well, Matthew made that up, you know? Exactly. Okay, so I'm going to read the other account of this, and then let's look at the detail it sheds on this. This is from Luke and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household ma- manager, and Susanna and many others who provide for them out of their means. Um, this is really amazing. This this passage in Luke 
has nothing to do with John the Baptist or his death. It, it just has Luke in passing who just happens to mention the name of the woman. So in doing so, he kind of answers the question of how the apostles would have heard the very things Herod was saying to his servants that we talked about previously. So we have an example of Luke explaining it to Matthew. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So it talks about Herod's household manager, and then you see, ah, that's how they would have known uh, what was going on where Herod was. I like that one. Here's another one that's interesting that will actually tie back to a previous one. So um, it says, Woe woe to you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida, for for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sat cloth and ashes. That's from Matthew eleven twenty one. And if you're looking at that by itself, what what mighty works? Matthew, uh, nothing he'd reported up to that point gave us any clue uh, really uh, about it. Mm-hmm. I, I want you to think about this. I'm just going to give a little bit of a, a fictitious thing for everybody to think about if you're at home listening to this. Pretend you were going to make up uh, a gospel story. Um, and it was going to have something to do with money uh, and with food. You know, who who would come into that? Some people say, well, maybe maybe Judas, right? He had the he had the the money. Some people, well, maybe Peter. He's a prominent person. Jesus is talking to him a lot. It's interesting. Let's let's read this from the New Testament. Lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd was committed towards him, Jesus said to Philip, "Let's just pause there, Philip." Why, why is he coming up? And, and then it says, Where are we to buy bread so that people may eat? Very, very fascinating. Why does he ask Philip? Here's another passage. On the return, the apostles, the apostles told him all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. Now let's look at another separate passage. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Now, all of a sudden, all the pieces fit. Right. Jesus is about to feed the 5,000. John doesn't mm. tell you where it is. Uh, Luke tells you it's in Bethsaida, but doesn't mention Philip. Then in a totally mm. different passage, John tells you Philip is from Bethsaida. Only by putting all of this together does it make sense why he's asking Philip. If I came to a town I didn't know anything about and somebody was from there, you'd ask that person, hey, exactly. where can we go to to buy bread? And so it's really interesting. You know, Matthew, he often arranges his uh, material thematically rather than chronologically. Mm-hmm. And so this tells the, you know, he tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14. Only by comparing Luke's account do we discover that the feeding of 5,000 actually took place, uh, you know, uh, before Jesus pronounced the woes over Bethsaida. Remember he said, woe unto Bethsaida? Right. And at that point, if you were just reading that, you'd be like, what do you mean? And so when you piece all this stuff together, it's really, really interesting, and it paints a full picture that you wouldn't just get right by accident. That's great. Um, maybe we should just go over one more then. And this one comes from Mark, and I'll quote, uh, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, that's in Mark fourteen fifty-eight. Um, well, really, in the Synoptic Gospels, we have nothing that provides any pretext for this accusation, right? I mean, the Gospel of John, though, I think sheds a little bit of light on this. And, that, and it reads like this. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's in John 2, 18-19. John really gives us the original statement of Jesus, but doesn't use it as an accusation. The synoptics, on the other hand, give us the accusation, again, but not the original statement. So when analyzed like this, just like the last few examples, again, we get the full picture, and that makes sense. The story makes sense comprehensively. Yeah, so just if we sum up this concept of, of what's sometimes called undesigned coincidences, and again, some of them we actually went over um, in another context in a different cast, right? We have things right. outside the Bible that corroborate with the Bible, and we also have different accounts in the Bible where we have internal evidence, and we see really the coherence um, from these from these different things. There's a lot more internal examples uh, we could go over also. I just wanted to make the point on this. If we have one undesigned coincidence like this, it might be an example. It, you know, it might be, hey, every once in a while you could, you could find a couple of jigsaw pieces that didn't really belong together that just happened to fit. Exactly, that might happen every once in a great while. But when you start to look through the New Testament and you see it happening again and again and again from multiple different documents, at some point it becomes a little bit silly, like I say, to, to think that they're all just accidental. And so if you look at this in its totality, it has a lot of cumulative, cumulative force and it's hard to deny. I agree. And this is really such a unique line of evidence. You know, I think it might be new for some of our listeners, and I hope that they've enjoyed it and you've enjoyed it. I recently you know, read the book Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. In that book, he does such a good job of talking about what is good evidence. He talks about it from the viewpoint of a detective, which I really like. I think sometimes the irony... Um, is that lots of people want to dismiss the Gospels because of divergent detail or perceived differences. And yet, you know, this kind of evidence really turns that idea right on its head. We clearly see from what Dave has shared and what we've discussed here that sometimes individual detail given by a witness interlocks just perfectly and complements details from another witness. It's done in passenger passages where these individuals weren't even talking about the same subject, right? But... But in passing, they happen to give us these clues that we can then piece together this amazing tapestry from. So I hope you've enjoyed this installment of the I Believe podcast. The evidence, again, shows us that we have an incredibly reliable and trustworthy New Testament. Dave, I can't thank you enough for being with us. Thanks it's been for good. being thank here. Thank you for having me. Please make sure to let us know if you have comments or questions and um, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again. Have a blessed day. Thank you for listening to I Believe. Expressions of Faith with host Karen Trifoletti. For the video of this podcast, visit our website at ibelievepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ibelievepodcast. Follow us on Twitter or give us a call at 185-KNOW-GOD-1 with your sincere questions. Karen would love to hear from you. If you like this podcast, you can help support it by subscribing to it in iTunes or writing a review. Post a link on your blog or Facebook page. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thanks for listening.